The following message was given by Raymond Goodlett on Sunday, April 29th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. My name is Raymond, and I'm one of the pastors here. It's always a privilege to be here with you guys like this. Uh, For time's sake, would you go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19. We're going to look at verses 1 through 10 this morning. Today is my 12th anniversary. Heather and I have been married for 12 years. 12 wonderful years, three, three daughters in tow. It's been, it's been just a, a great ride. We, we, we love being married, and we, we love getting to be the parents of those three girls there. Um, and I'm just so grateful, not only to God, but I, as I, I went to the, the service, the other congregation across the river there, I just realized how many people have prayed for us, you know, and just what, what a part that so many people have played in the formation of our family and, and just in supporting us through the years. So we couldn't be more thankful to all of you. And, and um, so, yeah, 12 years. I, I feel like in some sense we're, we're just getting started. And hopefully that, you know, for another few decades, as the Lord would see fit for as long as we both shall live, we'll get to enjoy this together. Luke chapter 19. We're actually beginning a new series this morning. A new teaching series. We're calling it Sent, the Mission of Jesus. Sent, the Mission of of Jesus. And so before we actually read Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, I want to take one last look at John chapter 20, verse 21. Robert Greene has been helping us to understand and apply this passage to our lives recently over the past few weeks. And so we want to take one more look at it to see what the Lord would say to us. Let me pray and then we'll get started. Lord, help us to, to listen well to you right now and to get a sense of what you mean when you say to us that we are sent into the world. In Jesus' name, amen. John chapter 20, verse 21, Jesus said, as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. In one sense, as Christians, we don't simply go anywhere anymore. We're sent. We're sent by Jesus into our homes. We're sent by Jesus into our schools. We're sent by Jesus into our workplaces. We're sent by Jesus into our neighborhoods. And like we saw last week, we're sent by Jesus into all the world, to the nations so that people can meet him, to represent and reflect Jesus everywhere that we go. And the purpose for which Jesus sends us into the world is at every time connected to the purpose for which he was sent into the world. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. So what we want to do in this series is we want to take a look at a number of statements that Jesus himself makes about why he came into this world. And then we want to understand what that means for us today as his disciples, as as Christians in the world today. So let's start all of that by reading Luke chapter 19, verses 1 through 10, where we'll be introduced to a wee little man named Zacchaeus. Now I know you probably have that song in your head. Luke chapter 19, verse 1 through 10. He, that is Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small in stature. 
So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they being the crowd, they all grumbled, hmm, he has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. You know, pause, in one sense, let me say this before I go further. It doesn't really matter in the end what other people in the crowd think about you. What really matters is what Jesus thinks about you, how you respond to him. It doesn't matter if people think you don't measure up in certain ways to certain standards. That's, that's not the issue this morning. If you're here, what matters is what Jesus has to say and what he thinks. And we want to be clear about that as we go forward. Maybe Zacchaeus had a sense of this in verse 8, probably back at his house. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. You can actually read Exodus chapter 22, verse 1 on your own time, and, and you'll see why Zacchaeus probably offered to repay this thing fourfold. Verse 9, and Jesus responds. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house. Which is a play on words, by the way. Jesus' name means salvation. It means the Lord saves. It's like saying today Jesus has come to this house. So there's a play on words there. Let me read that again. Verse 9, and Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. Notice what Jesus did not say. He did not say today salvation has come to this house because Zacchaeus gave lots of money away to the poor. Did you all catch that? It wasn't these things Zacchaeus did that led to him receiving salvation. Jesus said today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now turn in your Bibles really quick to, to Galatians chapter three without losing your place here. I want to show this to you. You guys get, you get the, uh, the full bells and whistles in the 11 o'clock service. It's a good service to come to. Galatians chapter 3, at the very end, in verse 28 and 29, the Bible says there, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now that doesn't mean that males and females no longer exist and Jews and Greeks no longer exist. It just means that that's not how we determine who gets to inherit the spiritual inheritance that comes from God to those who believe. And verse 29, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Do you see that? If you are Christ, if you belong to him, then you are a child of Abraham. What Jesus is saying about Zacchaeus, go back to Luke chapter 19, what he is saying is that I see evidence of genuine repentance in the way that you are responding to me. I see that salvation has indeed come to you and the fruit of that, the effect of that, not the cause of it, the effect of it is that Zacchaeus is now willing all of a sudden to return stolen goods. You see that? 
So Jesus says, I see your faith. You are indeed a child of Abraham. You belong to Christ. And therefore, I can say today, salvation has come to this house. Verse 10, Luke 19, verse 10. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. That is what we are going to look at this morning. The Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. At a minimum, that means that Jesus believes, in the way that Jesus sees people, in the way that he sees the world, Jesus believes that there are people who are rightly described by the term lost. And being lost in this sense presents a very real spiritual danger. Such that Jesus in his compassion for the lost comes to seek them and to save them from that danger. And without getting too long, that danger is the very real prospect of one day appearing before God, our eternal judge, still in our sins, unforgiven. Jesus wants to save, wants to rescue people from that. And so he came all the way from heaven to seek us and to save us that none of us would have to endure such an awful fate. Now what we want to do then with the rest of our time is we just want to look at what this means. The fact that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. What does that mean for those of us who are Christians, who are believers this morning? And what does that mean for those of us who are not yet Christians? All right, so let's meet Zacchaeus. Let's see what happens when he meets Jesus and see if we can answer those questions for ourselves. Let's look at what we hear about Zacchaeus, the description of Zacchaeus from the text. Look at verse two. We're told that there was a man named Zacchaeus and we're told two things about him right away. Number one, he was a chief tax collector in verse two, which means that he was very much hated and despised. Tax collectors in this day were the proxy of the occupying Roman government. People loved tax collectors the way that you and I love the people who when you park your car in the city, you see them coming out out of the corner with tickets, just ready to give you that lime green envelope. You know what I'm talking about. If that's you, I apologize. If that is your job, you just do your job well like any Christian should. Just, you know, I, I drive a, a little Honda Civic usually, you can just, you know. <laughs> be a little late to put the chalk on that tire. Anyway, so he was a chief tax collector, not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector. If anyone was hated, it was this man Zacchaeus. He was also not just a tax collector, he was very rich. Look at that in verse two. Now, when he says at the end of this passage, if I have defrauded anybody, you know that's not like a I might have or I might not have. He amassed his wealth by taking advantage of other people by defrauding them of what rightly belonged to them. So a good example would be the Roman government says, hey, that person should pay $10 in taxes, and Zacchaeus would come and say, for you it's 15. And he would pocket that five for himself. So he was very much despised. He was considered a traitor to his own people. And, and in general, I think people, if they don't envy the wealthy, they despise them. I mean, I keep up with some of the headlines and, and terms like the 1%. I, I hear and feel the animosity that people have toward rich people. Sometimes you would be led to believe that anyone who is wealthy has amassed their wealth by ill-gotten means. Whereas you, you do know that's not the case, right? 
Some people are wealthy because they have worked very hard and they've actually provided good and useful services and products to the rest of us. And our lives have been enhanced and enriched in many ways. I think about the people who invented the puddle jumper. You know, and I know avid swimmers think that's really bad for kids, but it's really good for parents. <laughs> if you've ever seen, I remember when our daughter was maybe about two and we would go to the pool, she would just put that thing on and she would get this face of, I can do this. She would just get this face and she would, she would just start swimming and we could actually have conversations at the pool. So whoever made the puddle jumper, you know that little thing you put on your arms and, and that person deserves to be a gazillionaire in my book, <laughs> right? The, 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 no ill-gotten means, but Zacchaeus would have been despised for these two things. He was wealthy People tend to envy or despise the wealthy, and he was a chief tax collector. We're told something else about him in verse three that shouldn't escape our attention this morning. In verse three, we're told that he was seeking to see who Jesus was. He was spiritually curious at the very least. He wanted to know some more about Jesus. And he recognized that on this particular day, the crowd that had gathered was one that presented an opportunity for him to see Jesus. Kind of like the crowd gathered here this morning. People sometimes come to these gatherings. They know that this crowd is distinct. It's not like any old crowd. This crowd represents an opportunity to see or hear something about Jesus. And so they come and they listen. And we pray and we hope that as they listen, they'll come to know Jesus as their Savior. Just like Zacchaeus did this day. But the final thing that I want to point out in terms of a description about Zacchaeus, and I think the most important for our purposes this morning, is what Jesus says in verse 10. Before meeting Jesus and encountering him in this way, Zacchaeus was lost. Now, what did Jesus mean when he said that? Well, we know he didn't mean that Zacchaeus was simply unfamiliar with his surroundings. They were in Jericho. This was where Zacchaeus lived. It was his hometown. You're saying, well, that means nothing. I live in Richmond, Virginia, and I get lost here all the time. Yes, but just go with me. He, he was familiar with Jericho. He wasn't getting lost there. And when, when Jesus called him down out of the tree and said, hey, I've got to come to your house today, Zacchaeus, he didn't look back and say, well, that, that's great, Jesus. I'd love to have you over, but, but I'm lost, and I, I don't know how to get home. No, he knew exactly how to get to where he needed to be. He wasn't lost in that sense. So what did Jesus mean? He lost his heart. Yes, that's right. That's right. Now let me explain what that means. How many of you in here are five years old? Anybody, five years old? How about four? Four and a half, which is different from four, you realize. There you go. All right, well, I'm going to tell you a story. First of all, if you're five, that is exactly how old I was when I was your age. <laughs> but something happened when I was five. I got lost. I was, I was at Harmony Hills Elementary School up in Silver Spring, Maryland, and we went on a field trip with my preschool class. We went on a field trip to the National Zoo in DC. I loved the zoo. But the zoo is a big place. If you've ever been to the National Zoo, that is a big place. And I don't know why, but for some reason, when we got off that bus and we got to the zoo where all the animals were, my teacher and the rest of my class just decided they weren't gonna follow me anymore. 
I just have no idea how they decided on all that, but nobody told me. And so I was just off, and then at, there, there came that moment where I, I looked up and I realized, I don't know anybody around me. I was lost. So I started crying, I started panicking, and I think at, at, at one moment I just realized, well, I, I can't do much here. I may as well go see some animals that I wanted to see. <laughs> so I went, and I remember going to see the monkeys, and I don't know what I did after that, but at some point I realized I need to find somebody who can help me. I need to go look for a police officer or somebody in a uniform that, that looks like they would help me and not hurt me. And so I just went in search for a police station. Couldn't find one at the zoo, so then I got this idea like, yeah, you know, I'll just cross Connecticut Avenue. Parents, can you imagine? <laughs> I'll just cross this busy street with all these other people, and maybe there are some police over there somewhere. Somehow, by the grace of God, I found a police officer. He took me back to the police station, and they gave me peanut butter sandwiches, peanut butter and jelly sandwiches with some milk, and they let me watch Tom and Jerry for a long time. I thought, this is not so bad. <laughs> When's the next field trip? You know, we, we should do this more often. So I'm sitting in there, and this is before cell phones, right? So for the, some of you looked at me like, there's something before cell phones. Yes, this was before cell phones. So they couldn't call my teacher. The best they could do is call the school. So I told them where I went to school. They called the school. I, I guess it happened this way. The school would have sent somebody out to the zoo, out to that police station, and then whoever that school official was and the police officer took me, went to the zoo, and we tried to find the rest of my class and my teacher. So I remember the moment where that happened. I saw my teacher coming, and I could not have been happier. Now what I want you to get is this. That, that whole story was to say this. The moment I was put back together with my teacher, I was no longer lost. I still couldn't tell you how to get back to school or how to get back to my house. But in the most important sense, I was no longer lost. Sometimes we're lost because we're unfamiliar with a particular place. But sometimes we're lost because we've been separated from a particular person. And when you're put back together with the one you were always meant to be with, you're no longer lost. Zacchaeus was lost. We are lost when we are separated from God. And you can be separated from God and look fine on the outside. Zacchaeus was Filthy rich. He had everything money could buy. He appeared to have no needs that he couldn't meet himself. But he was every bit as lost as anyone could be. And this loss, your socioeconomic status, has nothing to say about this. It doesn't matter. You, you find lost people like this as much on the putting greens of Brandermill as you do in the, in the project buildings of Gilpin Court. This is lost because of separation from God. But for Zacchaeus, for Zacchaeus, it all changed in a day, in a moment. Isaiah 59 verse 2 says, your iniquities 
have made a separation between you and God. Your sins have caused this separation. But once those sins are dealt with and removed and you are put back together with God through faith in Jesus Christ, you're no longer lost. You are, as Jesus says, saved. Now, what does all of this mean? The fact that Jesus came to seek and to save those kinds of lost people. What does all that mean for us today as Christians, as those who are Jesus' followers? Well, I'll give you a couple of things. Number one, at the very least, here's what it means. Evangelism, the business of proclaiming the good news about Jesus Christ to others with the hope that they too will receive him joyfully like Zacchaeus, that they too will put their faith in him, that they too will see their need for him, that they too will become his own. The, the business of proclaiming the good news or the gospel of Jesus to other people with the express hope that they will become Christians themselves is just part of the Christian life. Evangelism, it's the first thing this means for those of us who are believers, evangelism is simply part of the Christian life. It's not simply for pastors or people who communicate for a living. It's not simply for the talented few. It's not simply for the very zealous Christian who was just baptized, like many of you will be baptized this afternoon at three o'clock. It is for all Christians on some level or another. And, and, and don't just take my word for it. Don't just take my word for it. Look at, look at, real quick, look at Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. Matthew chapter 28, verse 18 through 20. When Jesus had been raised from the dead and he was commissioning his church to go out into the world, just as the Father had sent him, he said, even so I'm sending you. And he spoke to them and he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And he promised, I will be with you even until the end of the age. So Jesus wants his followers to go out with the message of the gospel and to intentionally help other people become Christians as well. This is true for you if you're young, Owen. This is true for you if you're old like me. Jesus wants his followers to communicate the life-changing message of the gospel to those around us everywhere that he sends us. Now, we can't save anybody, but we do have a share in the seeking. We can't save anybody, but we do have a share in the seeking, and we should embrace that. Jesus has sent us out to tell others about him and as Christians, this was helpful to me when I learned this after a few years as a very zealous new believer. We should never harass anybody who does not want to listen to our message. You don't have to do that. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is powerful enough on its own. It does not need any additional spice or oomph from us. The gospel will do its own work. We just need to freely tell it. We, we should not harass anyone who is unwilling to listen, but at the same time, we should never be deterred from, from sharing the gospel to anyone who is willing to listen. 
We, we have to keep that in mind and trust Jesus all along the way. The other thing that I think is important to, to keep in mind is that this also means that even though some people today will make demands of us, even though they will demand at times that we keep silent about Jesus, or they'll make a demand of us that we, we adopt and practice a kind of private version of Christianity that never enters into what they consider to be the public sphere. You're familiar with this at times, people make these kinds of demands. You and I should never, simply because people make those demands of us, we should never turn a deaf ear to Jesus who speaks so clearly to us about what he wants. We should never turn a deaf ear to Jesus who actually deserves the allegiance and the obedience that other people keep demanding from us. No, we should listen to Jesus instead. And so I'll give you one more example of what he says to us. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 through 21. I'll prove to you here that Jesus wants us to be actively involved in proclaiming the gospel. It says there, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and, watch this, gave us the ministry of reconciliation. God gave us, when he reconciled us through Christ, he also gave us the ministry of reconciliation. The ministry of finding others who are lost and reconciling them through the preached word. He gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Watch this, verse 19. That is, let me explain it, that is, in Christ God was the one reconciling the world to himself, not counting people's trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. So God is the one doing the actual reconciling. He entrusts to us the message by which he brings people together with himself. And we ought always to embrace our privilege and opportunity to declare that message to anyone who will listen. And just in case you're thinking, well, that's just not my thing, I want to remind you, look at Luke chapter 11, verse 23. There actually is no neutral position. There's no neutral position here. Luke chapter 11, verse 23. Jesus says, whoever is not with me is against me. And whoever does not gather with me scatters. In effect, Jesus says, if we are not gathering with him, if we are not gathering the lost for the purpose of, of having him save them, if we are not seeking them out, if we're not gathering with him, we are in effect scattering people from him. Do you see that? So let us embrace this as Christians. The Bible has spoken clearly. Evangelism is simply part and parcel of the Christian life. As we embrace that and remember it, though, there's something else as Christians we need to keep in mind, and that's this. The second thing is true humility should always mark our evangelistic efforts. True humility should always mark our evangelistic efforts. You can see this here in the scriptures as well. We should never forget where we've come from. We should never forget that we too were once lost. As I have to tell Philadelphia Eagles fans this, I live with a bunch of them in my house. 
uh, the, the NFL draft just happened, and this former kicker for the Eagles, David Akers, came into Jerry World, where the draft was being held in Arlington, Texas, and just began to troll Cowboys fans. He said, the last time you all won the Super Bowl, the kids who are being drafted today weren't even born. Now, of course, last year, we could have said that to Eagles fans about the parents of the kids who were being drafted. But, see, they've forgotten that they too were once lost. <laughs> they have forgotten. But as Christians, as Christians, we need to remember where we've come from and that we are now standing in grace only by the grace of God itself, by the mercy of God. Look at Romans chapter 3 starting in verse nine. Romans chapter three, starting in verse nine. Comparing Jews to Gentiles, or Jews to Greeks, knowing that the Jews considered themselves to be better than everyone else around them. The Apostle Paul reminds them and says, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. And here's why. Because sin is the ultimate equalizer. All of us are infected with and impacted by sin. All of us, whether we remember it or not, all of us have at some point been separated from God because of sin, in need of grace and reconciliation. And, and the Bible says here, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. All of us are equal at that point. It goes on there in verse 10 to say none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. Everyone has turned away. Together they have become worthless. No one does good. No, not one. And then down in verse 23, the Bible reminds us that in one sense, like Zacchaeus, pun intended, we all come up short. For all have sinned and fall, everybody, short of the glory of God. And the way God fixes that for us, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, that is made right with God by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, through what he does on the cross. That is always the case. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 will tell us, it is for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Not a result of work so that no one can boast. It would be silly, wouldn't it, at Christmas time for someone to open a Christmas present with their name on it and then begin boasting about how well they opened the present. It is just as silly, if not exponentially more so, to boast about receiving the greatest gift of all. We count ourselves grateful. And we move toward others with compassion and true humility because we remember exactly what it was like to be in their spot. Or, or we at least believe that that's exactly where we were because the scriptures tell us. Maybe we were too young and too blessed to be saved at a young age. But if you're like me, you remember vividly what it was to be lost. Not just at a zoo. Can't, I don't have time to tell you where I was lost. Some of you remember vividly. And so that humility should always mark us. Evangelism is just part of the Christian life, but true humility should always mark our evangelistic efforts. What does this mean for those of us who are not Christians in here this morning? 
I could mention lots of things. I will mention one for time's sake. Jesus is here in spirit, present today, seeking you in order to save you. Jesus is seeking you in order to save you from the very real danger that we just mentioned, the danger of one day appearing before your eternal judge still with unforgiven sin, in your sins. Jesus is here to seek you and to save you. Look back at Luke chapter 19, verse five and verse six. Now we're not told, we're not told how Jesus knew Zacchaeus' name. He just looks up in the tree and says, Zacchaeus, come on down, I've gotta stay at your house. I love how Jesus just invites himself to people's homes, you know. Come on down, Zacchaeus. I bet you he was shocked. I mean, we look at it and we say, it's Jesus, he knows everything. But I I don't know if that's how this one was playing out. Here's how I like to imagine it. This is not scripture, but just let me use my sanctified imagination here. Here's how I like to imagine it. Jesus had a disciple named Levi, or better known as Matthew. Back in chapter five, Jesus called to Matthew, to Levi, and said, come follow me. And he did. He became Jesus' follower. And that very same passage in in, in Luke chapter five tells us that he threw a big party for some people that he knew through work. All these tax collectors came together. He took the gospel into his workplace. He invited people to meet his new friend Jesus. And they came. And Jesus spoke to them. And I like to think that Levi, or Matthew, invited Zacchaeus, but he just couldn't make it that day. You know how it is when you invite somebody to church or some event where you believe the gospel will be be, be proclaimed and they can hear it, but then they text you like right before and they say, well, I can't find my red sock. I won't be able to make it. Red sock, you got a red sock. Yes, I I just can't make it. And you're like, oh, well, well, next time. Well, I think, I think, as they're passing through Zacchaeus' hometown, Matthew says, hey, Jesus, he lives lives near here. This is his town. Maybe we'll see him. And then he looks up in this tree, and maybe Matthew says, hey, he doesn't have to tell Jesus, but maybe he says, hey, hey, there he is. And he says, Zacchaeus, come on down. If you're here and you're lost still in the way that we're talking about today, you're never just a face in the crowd to Jesus. He knows you by name. When I say he's seeking you, he's calling out to you the same way he called to Zacchaeus, he's calling you by name. And, and, and you don't know me, you hardly know any of the people in here if that's you, but something's going on on the inside of you and your heart is racing, something's going on, you know that this is not a normal reaction to hearing some stranger talk. The voice of the one who created you is is calling out to you right now. That's why this is happening. And you say, well fine, pastor, what do I do? Well look at verse six. You do what Zacchaeus did. Verse six says, Zacchaeus hurried. See, he didn't delay, watch. He didn't wait for tomorrow. He hurried and came down and received Jesus joyfully. That's what you do. 
Be grateful for what he's doing in your heart now and receive him joyfully. You say, that can't be it. That's too good to be true. That cannot be it. Zacchaeus had to give away half of his goods. He, he climbed a tree so Jesus could notice him. I, I got, there's got to be something else I got to do. No. No. Jesus has done everything that needs to be done for you to be made right with God. Receive him joyfully. And you will never be lost again. Now, I don't know the particulars of what real repentance and turning from sin will look like for you. If you've stolen stuff, then yes, by, by all means, it will mean that you'll have to return that. If you're in here and, and you were the one that took one of my daughter's bikes a number of years ago, then maybe I'll see that bike show up back on my porch, right? No, but that might be what God requires of you. Some of you, it may be that he requires you to actually forgive the person that you know you can't forgive right now. You've not been able to forgive that person up to this point and the same spirit of God that is calling you to himself is telling you to forgive that person. Whatever the particulars are for you is between you and your God. What's the same for all of us is that we must receive Jesus joyfully and you'll be saved. You will be saved. And as for that tree, I'll close with this. You don't need to climb a tree. Zacchaeus climbed a tree that day, the Bible says, because he was seeking to see who Jesus was. What he didn't know, what he couldn't know, is that not long after that, it would be Jesus who would go up on a tree. So that not only Zacchaeus, but all of us could see who he really was. He would go up on the cross where he would die for the sins of his people to secure for us the forgiveness and the eternal life that only he could give us. He would go up on that tree so that we could know once and for all who he really is, the one and only son of God, the savior of the world, and that when we trust in him, our problem of sin, the sin that separates us from God and causes us to be lost and spiritually dead would be obliterated, moved from God's sight, never to be brought up against us again in his courtroom, and we would be put back together with him forever. That is the gospel. That is good news. And if you will receive Jesus joyfully, he has already done this for you. He has gone to the cross. He has died to pay the price that our sins deserve. He has been raised from the dead. As Robert has been saying for the past few weeks, that's why we're so excited about this. And he's still alive to seek and to save you today. Receive him joyfully. Receive him joyfully. See him there in your place for the removal and forgiveness of your sin and receive him joyfully. Lord, let's, let's pray together. Lord, thank you so much. Thank you so much for reminding us of these truths. I pray if anyone came in lost this morning that they would know what you say in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, 25, in their hearts, that you yourself bore our sins in your body on the tree and that though we were like straying sheep we have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of our souls we have now been reunited or reconciled to you through faith in Christ and we will never be lost again 
You will be with us even to the end of the age. I pray that for every man, woman, and child in this room. Lord, I pray that you would help us to remember that having been saved by grace, evangelism, proclaiming the gospel is just part of our lives, and we freely offer the gospel to those that you have caused to cross our path. And, and I pray that we would do so with true humility in all of our evangelistic efforts. And we thank you for that, Lord, and we trust your spirit to continue to do its work in our hearts. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen. You've been listening to a message by Raymond Goodlett given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.